The reading today is from 1 Samuel 24. It's found on page 296 of your church Bibles. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep's pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called to Saul, My lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into, the, into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs that you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hands. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy... Does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill, and kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Please keep your Bibles open. 
Thanks, Natalie. Um, I think we've got children uh, to uh, not shock us, I don't think, yet. Uh, I don't know. We shall see. Uh, but, uh, well, they're heading off anyhow, and it's lovely to have Hannah here to look after them. It's her very, very first teaching session with our children. How glad we are that uh, Hannah has come. Now, actually, it's, it's wonderful to have Rob leading us tonight as well. That uh, is a double whammy in terms of good things. So, if you've accidentally shut the book, back to open it again, page 294, and hey, this is funny, isn't it? I mean, just imagine if someone, when you get home, asks you, so what did you learn from church this evening? And uh, you say, well, actually, I learned a lot from a bloke who did a poo. And they say, seriously? You say, yeah, I learned a lot. I learned how God was merciful. And I learned how God actually changes people's attitudes towards him the way he does it. Well, you might think that that is entirely unconvincing for me to say. That's a shocking thing to say in church, I know. But actually, that's what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 24. It's all there in that chapter where you have a man who's on the run from his king, who at that time is called Saul, and Saul wants to kill David, because God had told David, you're going to be the next king, and Saul wants his son to be the next king, and so he wants David out of the way. He's wanted David out of the way for a long time, actually ever since chapter 19. It's relentless. Saul is trying to kill David again and again and again. He's seeking him every day. We found that out last week. And... It was nearly curtains for David last week, if you were here. You know that uh, Saul nearly had him, but just the last minute, the Philistines came along and started attacking him. So Saul had to go off and look after and deal with them. And so David didn't get the sword at the end of chapter 21, uh, chapter 23. And you think, how long is this going on for? And we've had chapter after chapter of it so far. Now, surely, if there's a God as powerful enough to summon up some Philistines to come and get Saul off David's back at the last minute, at the end of the last chapter, surely, if there's a God as powerful enough to use enemies in that kind of way, surely this God is going to be powerful enough to just simply get David an easier ride to the throne. Surely, it shouldn't be too hard for a God like that to put his king into his kingdom. Why the long wait? Why is it so drawn out? And it's not just a question for long ago David to ask why he had to wait and wait and wait in his time. It's actually a question for us as well, isn't it? Because God has promised us one day a future without tears. So why have there got to be so many tears along the way? 
Well, it's helpfully answered, I think, in this chapter that tells us two things. First, that God is incredibly merciful. And uh, we'll see the difference that that makes. Okay, we'll start then with our first heading. Why didn't uh, God make David king? Well, actually it's because God is merciful in this chapter. We wouldn't have seen it if what happened didn't happen. Let's go to the chapter. Chapter 24 starts with Saul back on David's tra- trail. And this time, if you look at uh, chapter 24, verse 2, he's got 3,000 able young men from all Israel with him. So in other words, able actually literally in the original says chosen men. And he's had the whole of Israel to choose from. So you've got here 3,000 of the country's best. He's fighting with the elite. That's what he's got on his side. And in that, he's uh, outnumbering David five to one. Because if you look at the previous chapter, chapter 23 and verse 13, you see that David's only got 600 men. So Saul's got... uh, Five to one odds on his side, and he's got chosen men on his side. Whereas David, well, we know from chapter 22, verse 2, that all he's got are people who are downtrodden and demoralized. David didn't choose them, no one would. And that's all he's got for him. Now, I'm giving you that build-up so that you can see how tempting it would be for David, when he's got such superior odds against him, to grab that window of opportunity to put things right and to win. So it would be so easy for David when Saul came into his cave to end it all. And Saul came into his cave, as I said at the start, to, well, it says in our nice English translations, to, reveal, to, to relieve himself. Uh, it's slightly smellier in the original. Uh, it actually says he went in to cover his feet. Um, you didn't want to... <laughs> Too much detail? (laughs) Okay, we'll stay with the polite English. He went in to relieve himself. And the men, in verse 4, see the chance. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. So the men say, Ha! This is the big chance. Actually, they weren't entirely right. Because the enemies that God had promised to give into David's hands were actually the Philistines in the previous chapter. If you look at chapter 23 and uh, verse 4. Once again, David inquired the Lord. And the Lord asked him, go down to Keilah, for I'm about to give the Philistines into your hands. I guess as far as the men were concerned, Saul is actually acting no differently to the Philistines. 
Uh, there's not much to choose from between them. Uh, they're both acting in the same evil way towards God's people. But Saul actually isn't a Philistine. Yet, isn't this a God-given opportunity to get rid of him? After all, Engedi apparently has lots and lots and lots of caves. And yet Saul chooses to walk into this one where David and his men are hiding. So there he is. He's on his own. He's unsuspecting. He's vulnerable. This is a God-created chance, David. Go for it. God gives you an opportunity. You grab it. Now. Uh, but he won't hurt Saul. He just uh, cuts off a bit of his robe. Now look, imagine how sharp that sword must have been to cut off a bit of the robe without Saul hearing or noticing anything. Imagine what other damage that sword might have been, do uh, might have been uh, doing if uh, David had a mind uh, to uh, harm him. But he won't hurt Saul, and he won't let his men hurt him either. And in fact, in verse 7, it says, with these words, David sharply rebuked his men. Actually, it says, he tore them up with his words. No way were they going to persuade him to take that kind of shortcut. David was therefore merciful to Saul. Now, that is something that we just need to think about tonight. Because what David says gives us a little window into his head, into his mind, for us to realize why he acted with mercy. That is actually worth us learning as we read what David said. The first reason why David acted with mercy is because he trusted that God was, some people say, sovereign. It really means that God is in control. So he trusts God's control and the reality is that actually God had made Saul king. And although Saul is now out of favor with God, he is still God's king. And that's how David sees him in verse 6. If you look at verse 6, he makes that point twice. Doesn't he? he calls Saul the Lord's anointed. The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. Or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. God made him king. He is God's king. To take a shortcut and to strike at him is to strike at God himself. And the way you can see that David has confidence in God's control is that he has confidence in God's timing. This will end when God ends it. I'm not going to end it. I trust his control equals I trust his timing. And so David has this amazing confidence that there actually is a moral ruler 
in our universe. Yet unfair things are happening to him every day. But the things that are unfair today doesn't mean that they won't be corrected one day in the future. And David is absolutely confident that God will do it in his time. He has confidence in that kind of control. So I want to make this big point today because I really want you to take it home with you and I'll come back to it later and make it again. But the point is this. If ever someone is asking you, do you trust God's control? Hear it like this. Do you trust God's timing? Because that is really how it practically works out that you trust God's control. Okay? First thing, he trusted God's control and therefore he could have mercy without taking the shortcut and taking Saul's life. Second thing that David uh, is aware of is that when he trusts God's control, he is then free to do good to his enemy. In fact, actually, it's interesting to note, isn't it, that he doesn't regard Saul as his enemy. If you look at verse 8, uh, he calls Saul his Lord. He calls him that twice. Then Lord went, uh, David went out of the cave and called us Saul, my Lord, the king. And look at the respect there. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Hey, that's making a big point that David sees Saul as a figure to be respected. In fact, actually, there's a lot of affection there as well. In verse 11, he calls Saul his father. He won't see him as his enemy. Fascinating, isn't it? If you really trust God's control, you won't see enemies. You see people in this kind of way. And he then goes on to win Saul's trust. Uh, in verse 9, by saying, look, why you listen to people who say that I want to harm you? Now, actually, if you've been here previous weeks and you follow the story so far, you think that that is actually David being quite generous because it's actually working the other way around. It's Saul that thinks that David's going to harm him and all the others are saying to him, no, he's not. So if you look at chapter 22 and verse, uh, 30, uh, verse 8, Saul is paranoid. Uh, is, everyone's conspiring against me. No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie in wait for me as he does today. Saul is the one who thinks that David's going to get him. And he's saying that again in verse 13 of chapter 22. Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse? giving him bread and a sword, inquiring of God for him, so that he has, he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me. That's what Saul is saying of David. Whereas, if you look at verse 14, Ahimelech answered the king, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David? He's highly respected in your household. There's actually everybody else telling Saul that David's okay. Saul is the one who's the one who's got it in for David. But David puts a nice little spin on that. And he says, and you mustn't listen to what other people are saying about me. Um, I'm no more harmless uh, than a flea to you. 
And it's important, therefore, for Saul to know that David is on his side. Here's this bit of robe, he says in verse 11, to prove that he is on Saul's side. He does good to his enemy rather than kill him. Now, if you've been here previous weeks, you know that King David is the Old Testament Messiah. He's there to get us ready to understand what Jesus is like, Jesus is the New Testament Messiah, and this is pure Jesus, isn't it, really? If you remember what it was like for Jesus when he was away from civilization in the desert and the devil comes to him and says to him, look, if you are the Son of God, I can give you the shortcut to all those kingdoms that you want. I can give you that. You don't have to go through the pain of waiting you don't have to go through all these sadnesses, ultimately the cross. I'll give you your kingdoms. But Jesus preferred to trust that God was in control, to trust God's timing, rather than take the shortcut that he was being offered. And later, very interestingly, he prayed for the good of the people who killed him. And he said, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I want the best for them, not the worst. Son of David has mercy. Uh, so David has mercy, and the son of David has mercy. That was very interesting, actually. That um, if you remember the story of a, maybe you don't. There's a blind man, and he wants to see, and Jesus is going to pass. And you know what he shouts out? He shouts out, "Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me!" And he says, shh, 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 it's important. He's going past. All the more, loudly, he shouts out to you, Son of David, have mercy on me. Is it David has mercy? And you see that in chapter 24. But you see something else in chapter 24, and that is the effect that it has on Saul. We say Saul was convicted. It's at that point that Saul saw the ugly side of him, if I could put it like that. And that's an amazing transformation. In fact, you see it in verse 16, don't you, when he calls David, my son. That's different. If you remember what I read in chapter 22, he's calling David the son of Jesse those days. In other words, slightly more distant way of referring to him. He's someone else's son, he's not me, he's are to do me harm, now he's my son, because I can see he's out to do me good. And that's changed everything. And so he is able to say this astonishing thing in verse 17, you are more righteous than I, he said, you have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. My friend, that is deep humility for a king to say that. And the king is saying it. In fact, actually, there is one thing more that he says that is even more astonishing. And that is what he goes on to say in uh, um, uh, verse 20, which is, you will surely be king. And the kingdom will be established in your hands. It is amazing that Saul is now saying that. 
I'll tell you what though. He's saying it not because David has got a sword to his throat to threaten him. He's saying it because David has won it from him. Because David has confidence in God and now Saul shares that confidence as well. Yes, you will be king. Nothing's going to stop that. I know you won't do it to me, but it will happen. And so what he does is he throws himself on David's mercy and he says, please will you be merciful to me and keep the mercy coming. I want you to be merciful to my family. And David promises that he will. Here's a man who walks into the cave with a killer motivation in his heart. Walks out humbly saying, how I need your mercy. Now, these truths have got tremendous implications for us today. Let me mention three. If you're someone who's new and you're kind of wanting to work out Christianity, what it means for you, why you should become a Christian perhaps, you're trying to understand, I wonder if I can tell you what the secret is. Do you become a Christian? It is to have the humility of a king and to see yourself like Saul. If you look at Saul and his relationship to David, humbly acknowledging that he tried to be king when he wasn't going to be the next king. If you copy that humility for yourself and say, well, actually, that's what it's like in the way that I relate to Jesus. Now, my friends, it is very easy, isn't it, to think that Jesus is out there wanting to somehow dominate your life. But isn't it better to see it the way it really is in this chapter? It shows us how God's Messiah is not out to dominate but to have mercy. Consider how much mercy he's had on you, not just in the day-to-day goodness that he shows to you, morning till evening, but in the way that he's extended your life, so at least you're here tonight and you have time to understand how merciful he is and to respond to it. My friend, I don't think any of us can become Christians unless we're humble. And I think, actually, a picture of humility is Saul. Will you see yourself like him? Will you turn to Jesus with the words that you see in verse 17? You are much more righteous than I am. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. Can you bring it in your heart to say that? Humbly. And then maybe like that blind man, say to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on me. Uh, Son of David, have mercy on me. And to my family. How lovely it would be if uh, that humility was yours tonight. What a crowning difference it would make to your life. And uh, you see how Uh, That's how uh, uh, wonderfully uh, Saul was able to 
to, to respond, at least at this moment in time. My friend, God isn't what people say. He doesn't hold a sword to your throat to threaten you. I think the most beautiful expression of it in the New Testament is in uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 6. I'll, I'll read it for you if you don't want to do the page turning. Um, Sorry, uh, uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Do you not realize that it is God's kindness that is intended to lead you to repentance? See, that's how God wins people around. By letting them know how merciful he is. So they can cry out for it themselves. If you're someone who's new, that would be a wonderful thing for you to do this evening. Maybe here in church or listening to this at home, perhaps on tape or on the internet. It is the Lord's kindness that is intended to bring you to repentance. I let it, let it as you listen and as I speak. What happens if you're someone who's had lots and lots of uh, church links? Who will you identify with in this passage? But might I suggest David's men? Why? But because they would say that they were under God's king. And they can quote God's promises, can't they? God's promise to give David's enemies into his hands. The only thing is, as you and I know, they've changed the promise. He didn't quite say that. And what they want to do is to take a shortcut into the future. That's the trap to be aware of. It is so easy to want the future that God promised here and now. Lots of expressions of it. I guess the dominant uh, uh, invitation to think like that is, in, in Dagenham, is through the various prosperity teaching churches that are around us, saying, well, God has promised us wealth, and so therefore it is ours to have now. It's actually not what God promised. We've changed the promise a bit, if we think it, and we've got the timing wrong, just like David's men. But don't let me just think that there's one group of people doing it. It's all of us, really, in different ways. We all expect God to answer our prayer now, just as we want it, maybe seeking healing, help, whatever way we particularly uh, need God to intervene that we expect him to do it instantly the way we want him to do it. And we're just like David's men saying, well, this is what uh, uh, God has promised. This is what uh, we should uh, expect. The reason is we hate to wait. And David's sharp rebuke in verse 7 shows us what a seriously ungodly thing it is to have those desires in our hearts. There's no reason why we can't ask God, but humbly, if this is in line with his will, if this is in line with his timing. But if we don't get his will right, and if we don't get his timing right, 
then we're going to be like David's men, we'll be hurting people instead of bringing them to experience mercy. If you're a person with church links, let's be humbled by David's men wanting the shortcuts that we want as well in our day. They're just different. What if you want to serve Jesus as your king and you want to also humbly apply this to yourself? Look, isn't the main encouragement of this chapter, of this chapter to be patient and to have confidence in God's timing? I want to come back to that and really underline it. Because it does sometimes feel like a very long wait. It does sometimes feel like it's jolly hard, day after day after day. But the Bible says that weight is tied in with God's mercy. If David struck Saul there and then, Saul would not have realized how merciful he is. By holding back, Saul was able to understand how merciful God is through his servant. And like that, God holds back and doesn't strike today because he wants people to see how merciful he is and to come to acknowledge the truth and be won over by his mercy and to ask him for it. And so the big take-home truth for us tonight is if you say you are someone who wants to trust God's control, then please, please, will you trust his timing? That's what trusting his control really is about. And it has a lovely effect on our lives. It means, therefore, that we no longer have to start agitating to get things the way we want it. And we can make it instead our pride to do good to people as we mirror God's mercy to him. Yes, he will put things right. Yes, he will make it fair. But we've got to wait for him to do that in his time. And while we're waiting, to do every bit of good we can to those, even those who hurt us. Now, that doesn't mean we're gullible. That doesn't mean we trust them and say, right, okay, they're not going to hurt us anymore because you notice at the last verse that Saul goes home, but David doesn't go home with him. David goes back to his stronghold. In other words, he knows that Saul's turnaround is only likely to be temporary. We see him back in his old ways next week. But he is still good to Saul. And we'll see him show mercy to Saul again. Why? Because he carries on trusting God's control, God's timing. And we need to take that same confidence home. And to deal as kindly as we can with those we don't get on with. Not thinking of them as enemy. Thinking of them in ways that would stop us, even beginning to harm them in the smallest way. Now, a lovely summary of that is there at the end of Romans chapter 12. And I just thought we'd end tonight by us reading 
uh, Romans 12 together. It's on the screen. It's on page 1139 if you want to read it straight out of the Bible. But Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21 is a lovely encouragement for us to bring together, especially if you are a believer, especially if you're someone who wants to be like the Lord Jesus in one area this week. Well, pick up the people who want to hurt you, perhaps, who make life difficult for you. And let's encourage each other by reading these words out to each other. Okay, so you're reading this out to the person who's sitting next to you. Let's read these verses together. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's David, isn't it? In 1 Samuel 24. How lovely if that could be us as well in this new week. Let's pray and then we'll have questions or comments as you please. Let's pray first. Our Father, we love it the way that the uh, uh, Messiah of the Old Testament, uh, King David, uh, shows us what uh, a wonderful, merciful God you are. And that is amplified by the Messiah in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of David. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you would please help us to learn how to trust your control by trusting in your timing. And please would you help us to trusting in your control do as much good as we can even to those who don't like us. That uh, we might uh, resemble Jesus. That we might bring glory to his name. Amen. Amen.